A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Herlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP of Data Mesh Consulting Services at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading sponsor for Trino, the open source project, and Jamak's Data Mesh book, delivering data-driven value at scale. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Laura Madsen, who's the CEO of Moxie Analytics and the author of the great book, Disrupting Data Governance. I asked her to be on because of her great work in making us rethink data governance by really analyzing every aspect and saying, does this make sense? (laughs) For the purposes of this, this bluff, this bottom line up front, When discussing data governance, I'm referring to the way many large organizations handle data governance at scale, a way that is very rigid and causes bottlenecks. We all know we can't stereotype or group every org together, but general trends can be observed. So here are some key takeaways and thoughts from Laura's point of view. Number one, a big issue with today's data governance is that the concept of data stewards, you know, the people who own the data concepts, the subject matter experts, it's from 30 years ago and hasn't changed much despite the demands and scope changing dramatically, right? Uh, Laura talks about it being maybe a, a few hundred uh, columns or something like that. And now a data steward may have 100 tables or, <laughs> or more. Uh, number two, the data governance committees and council structure most organizations use is inherently inflexible and ineffectual. Those making the decisions don't really understand what's happening with the data under the covers, and those who do understand have little ability to influence the wider committee outside their own domain, and thus they become a major bottleneck. Number three, data governance committees can be quite useful if they focus on communication and context exchange rather than driving decisions and work forward. Number four, to drive change in your data governance practices, you need to disrupt, but not destroy. Start to break down the big picture into much smaller bite-sized chunks that when you improve on them will incrementally drive value. Agile, kind of capital A Agile, provides a good framework to think about approaching this. Number five, you will absolutely have to throw out a lot of your current data governance practices, you know, over time as you replace them with better ways of working. You will need to really evaluate each practice and assess if it will drive value or should be replaced. Number six, we kind of talked about the Marie Kondo. If you're not familiar, it's it's, uh, somebody who kind of tidies people's places, but you need to Marie Kondo your, your data governance practices. Really look at your processes one by one and ask, does this spark value? Number seven, 
data governance does not provide incremental value to most organizations. It is about compliance and risk mitigation. If you can drive value creation with data governance, you can more easily drive change. People want to enable value creation or at least are hesitant to stop it in most organizations. Look for small ways to drive incremental value to build your momentum to make further changes, right? You kind of build up that momentum and and really get going. Number eight, the current data steward and data ownership model essentially rewards inaction more than action. Action has a risk and risk mitigation is a large part of the data steward and data owner's role. We need to change that relationship and reward enabling valuable use of data, but within compliance, obviously still. Number nine, Laura is a fan of the hub and spoke model for data governance and just in general. To make hub and spoke work, one, everyone has to work, really, really work on strong communication. And number two, the central governance team cannot fall into the trap of trying to fix the data themselves. They must empower and enable the teams to fix their own data. Number 10, data governance teams must stop writing policies. Compliance and InfoSec should be doing that. Policies become something that can be audited. Don't give regulators the path to finding you. (laughs) Number 11, it's crucial to understand that there is a quote-unquote good enough in data governance. And it's often Good enough only for right now. Find that line of good enough for now, look to reevaluate, and find places that aren't good enough or are just barely good enough to focus on. There will assuredly be lots. Number 12, it will probably be very uncomfortable disrupting the way you do data governance at first. Start to build that muscle memory with small, incrementally valuable changes. Number 13, there must be a balance between flexibility and rigidity in data governance. Too much flexibility causes chaos. Too much rigidity causes the pain you are probably feeling right now, since most people really fall on that rigid side of the spectrum. And finally, number 14, Laura wants data governance professionals, I'm speaking to you directly now, to know that she understands how difficult your role is and the work you do is very valuable. She sees you, I see you as well. Keep up the good work. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Okay, very, very excited for today's episode. I've got Laura Madsen here, who's the CEO of Moxie Analytics and is the author of a great book that, you know, if you've been (laughs) kind of talking to a lot of people in the data space that you've probably heard of her book of disrupting data governance. Um, I think her approach to thinking about rethinking uh, data governance is so crucial to doing something like data mesh or whatever you're doing. I think we have to really rethink a lot of stuff. So I'm excited to dig into how we can specifically apply that uh, rethinking approach to data governance with with somebody who's really spent a lot of time, obviously, focusing on this exact topic. So. Um, with that, Laura, if you don't mind, if you could give people a bit of an introduction to yourself and, and a little bit about like what Moxie does, and so and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Sure, yeah, happy to. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Um, so yeah, Laura Madsen, and um, I do work at Moxie Analytics. That's true, and we really focus on enabling people to do more with data. And, and we really try to remove a lot of the barriers because at the end of the day, the only way we're actually going to get a lot of this work done uh, is through the people that deliver these capabilities. Uh, so that's what Moxie Analytics focuses on. 
and just in terms of me, uh, I have been around data for a really long time, over 20 years in the industry, most of that in healthcare. I've written a couple of books on healthcare data and healthcare, uh, what we used to lovingly refer to as business analytics, so um, or business intelligence. Uh, so, yeah, I do come at this data governance thing with a fair amount of time invested. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 one of those things where I, I love I like talking to people that are kind of new to the industry like myself and, and things like that. But I also love the people who aren't so attached to this is the way we've been doing it that are like, I've been struggling with this for years and I've been mm-hmm. smashing against trying to change this. So. I think, why don't we talk about kind of what d- data governance has been and how it hasn't evolved much over the last 30 years or so. I think yeah. um, I think that's, uh, you, you and I were talking about this in, in the pre-call about the data, the governance team and the steward role about and how it wasn't really as designed for today's challenges. So I think that's a really good uh, jumping off point for, for that conversation. Sure. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I I like to do is um, I like to kind of take a take a look backwards to see how we ended up here, right? Because if you don't understand your history, you're doomed to repeat it. And so when I started writing Disrupting Data Governance, the first thing I did is sort of take a step back and figure out, well, how how did data governance come to be? And uh, reached out to you know s- several people um, and. Um, most specifically, I was in a conversation with Claudia Imhoff and, and Claudia started talking about the initial, you know, really uh, inclination towards data governance was this idea that they were building these data repositories. I think this was even before they called it the data warehouse. Uh, and they needed somebody from the business side to sort of steward the data. That is literally where the term came from, is this idea that, you know, as, as technical people that could pull all that data into a repository, uh, they just needed somebody from the business side to help steward, you know, these decisions that were being made, and hence data governance was born. So we're talking about the 1990s, which, um, you know, there's a lot of great things that can be talked about with the 1990s. The fashion choices were stellar. Right. Um, excellent music. Um, I don't know that, you know, if we think about the things that we did in the 90s versus how we do things now in the 2020s, we're doing much of anything the same way. <laughs> but we are doing data governance pretty much the same way, right? So they created a whole bunch of committee structures to make sure you had organizational alignment and you had data stewards attached to specific data domains, keeping in mind that all of this was happening when your quote unquote data warehouse was, you know, maybe a hundred tables and a couple hundred thousand rows of data, right? And so you fast forward a couple of decades and what happens is we have, you know, whether or not you love the term big data, you have data coming at you like a tsunami and you're still out there you know, with a bucket <laughs> trying to move things forward, you know, like, Oh, let's have a committee meeting and tell everybody that we're defining new stuff. And, and, um, and it, it if you really look at that from a rational perspective, it, it seems real questionable. Yeah. I think that rational perspective is something that a lot of people that have come from outside of data, to data, you know, you talk to people who've been doing microservices and things like yeah. that, yeah. and they'll when they come into data, they're like, but "We we fixed how to do this ten years ago. Like <laughs> we we we've, we've been addressing this. Why why hasn't data picked it up?" So, right. um, and, and with that kind of, uh, I know a lot of people start to talk about the offensive and the defensive approach to data and data governance. It sounds like. With that, it makes it so that you can't be offensive, you can't leverage um, the data very well. And so then you kind of really focus in on being defensive and trying to minimize risk. Or how have you seen that actually, you know, there, there are some things where I feel like there might be obvious answers to what are the challenges that come from that? Like, what are the big <laughs> problems and pain points? But would love to, to make sure that I'm not uh, just kind of making some assumptions. Yeah. Well, so first and foremost, right, you're, you're absolutely spot on. It sort of ends up becoming the fox guarding the hen house. Um, almost by default, as soon as you start to um, think about data governance this way, particularly 
in the context of a modern environment. Um, compliance and privacy and security, you know, get in the mix. And then all of a sudden the, d- the default mechanism is shut stuff down and then wait for somebody to holler. Um, so there's definitely that aspect of it. And I think the, the relationship with your privacy, security and compliance folks needs to fundamentally change in this sort of brave new world of data governance. We can't keep using that mechanism the same way we always have. But the biggest Achilles heel of this structure um, in my opinion, is these sort of council and committee, you know, ways of thinking about decision making. Um, and that's generally, you know, you have this big data governance council that's got a bunch of, you know, executives in it. And then you have this working group layer that sometimes has data owners, but mainly has data stewards in it. And the people that are making the decisions, these data owners that are at, at the, you know, director and above level have no line of sight to what's actually happening with the data stewards and the data stewards usually can't possibly explain all of the nuances that are happening in the data to, to help the data owners understand what, you know, how these decisions should be made. So what we've done is we've put, you know, accountability for decision-making in the hands of people that don't, don't actually have an appreciation for that. And then we have this weird thing where, you know, we have this big influx, like, oh, we have a problem with data governance, so let's do something. So we have these big projects we deploy, and we hire a bunch of people, and there's all this enthusiasm because everybody's really tired of arguing about the definition of something. And and you get all these committees together, and everybody's rip-roaring, ready to go until they actually get to the work. And then all of a sudden, people stop coming to the meetings. And because of the way you've designed this decision-making structure, you can't make any decisions. So you're just having these meetings and you're never moving anything forward. And so it, it you really just kind of put yourself in this position where you never are able to be successful. And then people wonder, like those executives, well, I'm spending all this money on this data governance thing and it's not moving anywhere. So let's just get rid of it. Right. It's not helping. So every organization that I walk into now as a consultant is, is usually on their second, third, or 417th iteration of data governance because they keep doing this cycle over and over again. And they're trying to do it for the right reasons. Uh, you know, and, and I respect organizations when they do keep trying to do it. Uh, but, but part of the problem is, is that we have so much data coming at us. Our, most of our organizations are matrixed. Um, and, and the way we've constructed the data governance as a, as a framework just doesn't work in those environments. It sounds like, I mean, this is kind of one of the main things of data mesh. You know, I know the disrupting data governance isn't specific to data mesh, but it feels like one of those things. Um, I, I feel like uh, if your book had been out uh, earlier and been in Schmack's hands, it would be kind of like her with team topologies, where she would have been incorporating your specific language and things into it. Because I think exactly what you're talking about of within data mesh trying to it's not decentralized governance. I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand is the difference between federated and decentralized. Mm-hmm. If you actually tried to pin me down and ask me that, I would have no real words how to do it. I just have that, the kind of feeling <laughs> what sure. it is. But that there are things where you should centralize. You should centralize the standards. You should centralize the things that add value when they are centralized. But you should put things in the hands of the people who. The, the accountability in the hands of the people who actually can understand what the accountability means and understand the difference between choosing A or B on, on these different things. And so I, I really like the framing that you're, you're putting up there because it's not that these people are idiots and they're doing it wrong. It's that the political motion of these types of committee-based decision-making makes it so that you end up never achieving your, your goals. Mm-hmm. That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's very true. And I think, you know, the interesting thing is when, when I look at other data governance pr- practitioners, those people that are in these organizations doing the good work, um, I just give so much credit to those people that are always moving these things forward because these roles are incredibly difficult to do well, Um, you know, because you're pressed in on all of these different areas uh, around that, you know, certainly that political aspect, but it's, you know, we're forcing decisions out of people that don't really have a deep appreciation of what, what the work is. And, and that's just putting them in a bad spot too, you know? 
um, so you were talking just a minute ago about this concept of um, decentralized or, or federated. And I, I have always loved that hub and spoke model for organizations. And that's whether you're talking about your analytics team as a whole or your data governance really specifically. Um, but it's this idea of, so in, uh, in competing on analytics, of course, the venerable book written by Harris and Davenport, they talk about this hybrid model. Um, and there's been many articles that have been written about it since then sort of being the best of both worlds. But the interesting thing about it is um, the touch points are really critical. So it's really true with microservices too, right? You you want to make the impact as small as possible, but where the rub happens with friction on those microservices is is the touch points between, you know, two related things, right? And obviously in, from our perspective, it's data. So you have these two related um, keys, and and when you have lots of touch points, that's where it gets really, really difficult. It's all about communication. From a technical perspective, you have messaging things that go back and forth. And so that's how you deal with the communication. But when you apply that to an organization, you have to figure out how you are communicating against all of those touch points in that hub and spoke model. And so much of that uh, data governance really should be focused on that. But we've often put our data governance leaders in these positions where they're analysts and they know where all the data bodies are buried. And so their inclination is to dive deep into the data and quote unquote fix it. And what, what I really think these data governance leaders should do is come up a layer and be worrying about those touch points of that hub and spoke model of working back with these, you know, business teams that are providing that context, those subject matter experts. Uh, and and then bringing together what is shared into that hub, which has, you know, is probably your technology layers like data catalogs. It's your shared services like training and things like that. But the fluidity has to be there. And traditional data governance structures have not generally allowed for that level of fluidity. Yeah. And I think the something I've talked about is that the we want governance to switch to an enabler, right? We want that team to be the backdrop. We don't want teams to have to understand exactly how to do GDPR and things like that. So, you know, set up the the things to be like, hey, team, you understand that this is PII. You're, you know that it's PII, so, or you should know. Um, and if you don't know, come and ask, but that they've got that ability to work with them to do the right things, but that you're still not saying central team should make the decision for something they don't have the context for, but that the, um, you know, distributed team, the federated team, the, the people in the actual domains, they can have the help when they need it. But there's a lot of times where, you know, you, you're hiring smart people, presumably. So, if they're smart and they're smart about their business context, if you train them on what are the things that could be issues, then they'll market them for themselves. So right. if, and especially if you put the accountability on their side of say, if you get this wrong, it's not the data governance team's fault, it's yours. So let's make sure that we're aligned on what's what's the right way to do this. Right. Yeah, I think the racy models in, you know, a more modern data governance structure, if you want to think about it, like an agile data governance structure is very different than the racy models in our traditional. So let's, you know, thinking about compliance and privacy and information security, right? When I started in data governance in the late 90s, um, the, I was the InfoSec right? It didn't exist as a role. There was no training. Nobody had any context of what it was. I was InfoSec. I was privacy. I was compliance. Um, and I was, and I was in healthcare, right? I've spent most of my professional career in healthcare. So, um, in the late 1990s, it just was a very different aspect of, of the world. So by default in, in data governance, I provided that kind of, of, uh, perspective. Well, again, you know, you fast forward a couple of decades and putting me in that position or any data governance person in that position is a terrible idea, <laughs> right? Um, we have people that spend their educational career becoming, you know, chief information security officers and compliance officers and privacy officers. Yet in data governance, we have historically still served as that proxy, right? So... Uh, a great example is 
uh, one of the first things I tell my clients is stop writing policies. So if you're a data governance person and you're listening to this right now, stop writing policies. That is not your job. And you can thank me later. Um, because the thing is, is that policies are, as soon as you write them, the organization has to take action against them. Otherwise, you could be audited against it. And these fines are becoming real. We're talking like $400 million real. So f- flipping that RACI model, that responsible, accountable, consulted, and informed, you have got to put that policy construction on your InfoSec, less InfoSec, but uh, certainly on your privacy and compliance folks. Should you be participating? Sure, of course you should be because you're the ones that are operationally executing against you know, your organization's ability to make sure you're doing the right things with data, of course, along with your information security team, but you shouldn't be writing those things. Uh, and that's just you know, one way to start thinking about well, who is actually accountable, who is actually responsible, and how do we align that best in the organization to make that tight so that you're not putting people in a situation where they're accountable for something they have zero control over, which is absolutely a recipe for failure. I mean, that's kind of one of the key tenets of data mesh of push the, uh, the ownership of the data into the domains because they know it best and they're the ones who can actually impact it, right? The, the data team historically has been, um, kind of playing telephone between the producers and the consumers and they don't control at all the production. So when things change, yeah, everything breaks and they have to try and rush to fix it, but they didn't even know it was going to change and they couldn't have prevented it and, and all of that versus, hey, if you put it in the hands of somebody who actually knows what's going to happen, then, you know, you have a and you give them the incentivization and the capabilities to actually care about, you know, what those changes are going to impact, then it really um can change the way that that people have relationships with data even if they the domain teams don't really understand how to how to really think about their data up front they can at least say hey we we can understand people are consuming this and and we can go and talk to them and ask how and we can get smarter that way so um you you said something about uh fluidity and and we had talked in in the pre-call about um the how rigid so many of these you know policies but also structure and things like that let's say um you know you've got somebody who's listening from the data governance team and they're they're just saying preach preach you know constantly to everything <laughs> you're saying how do you start to have them move forward how do you get them to work within their their you know and i know it it depends because every organization is different but like is there anything that you've seen that helps in in most cases a lot you know a fair number of cases to do they have to change the way the organization works to start changing the way that they do work and deliver work which you know obviously has a major um, kind of uh, difficulty level of getting to right. that point so <laughs> somebody is super super bought in is it that they have to get the people above them bought in before they can start moving or, or how would you start them on this path? Sure, sure. It's a great question, actually. And I, and I think that it's, um, it's one of those things that data governance struggles with all the time. It's this, the reality of, you know, the, the work in front of you is so significant um, that a lot of times you just can't kind of just put your head down and you just keep swimming. And, and then all of a sudden you look up and, and the world has changed and, and you're not even sure what you should or could be working on anymore. Um, so if you happen to look up and you're listening to this podcast and you're like, okay, I see it now. This is the thing I'm supposed to be doing. How, where do I start? So it may be, it may be an oversimplification or, or just maybe said too much, but you know, I always, I always ask people if they, if they call me and like, okay, I'm in, how do we do this? The first thing I ask them is like, think about the why, like, why are you, why are you calling me? Why do you want to, um, theoretically change or disrupt your data governance function? Uh, and the and the reason I ask that is uh, a very you know it's sort of a personal thing, right? Um, I am an inter- I am a terrible employee. I, I'm a I'm a great consultant, but I'm a terrible employee. And the reason I'm a terrible employee is because I am a disruptor by nature. Um, 
I love to blow stuff up and see what happens. <laughs> it's like, well, let's just see. This doesn't work. Let's just see if I, you know, go over here and blow it up and, and I'll pick up whatever those pieces um, are left and then see if I can put something back together again. So naturally, when my inclination with an organization is to just kind of come in and blow stuff up, it's easy to do that as a consultant. But if you're doing that as an employee, just because you think, oh, Jay, it's not working, let's blow it up. You really need to stop and, and figure out your why. Like, why are you doing that? Um, if the why is for the right reasons, which is it's not working for my organization, we don't, you know, we spend too much time, we spend too much money, um, you know, we're, I don't know, we just, we just took a fine or something like that, right? Or there was a breach or something. Those are good reasons. If it comes back to, well, I just, I'm just bored, you know, or I don't want to do this anymore. Um, that's a bad reason. <laughs> Uh, and and the reason this this matters is because the next step is is pretty hard, um, which is everything that you've held dear about how we've thought about data governance, we're going to chuck out the window. And if you're coming from a place of I'm just bored and I don't want to do that, that sounds like a great thing, but you're going to burn out pretty quick because the uh, you know the amount of work that it takes to sh- switch that inertia of your brain about how you used to always do things is really hard. And that's true with any change, right? Data governance or, you know, cutting out sugar. <laughs> so so that's why I, I ask people to just kind of think through that. And then the next thing um, I ask them to do is think about um, all the work that they have. And I, and I ask them to write down a big long list. And I don't care if it's like 10 pages. All the list of everything you want to do. And then we turn that into a, a, a backlog. And then we slowly start delivering value in really small increments because the exercise, the muscle exercise that you have to get good at is literally delivering things in small increments, removing that layer, those layers of of committees that are making your decisions so that the decision actually sits with people that know why they're making those choices. Um, But keeping that level of communication that goes up, because that's why the committees were created in the first place, right? That's why data owners exist in the first place. It's for communication. It's for uh, transparency. It's for sharing a more broadly what's happening in your organization for data governance. So that's really what we start doing is we start with a why and then we start with a with a what. Um, and then we just kind of keep going down that list of um, creating that punch list and, you know, breaking out these big tasks into a whole series of little tasks and kind of uh, kind of pulling through those. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting. Every organization is a little bit different, like you said, but uh, I've, I've done this with several now and uh, I've taken this approach and every organization has been amazed at what happens when they break stuff apart and just start doing it small. Is it these big changes like, oh my God, everything's different. Everything's wonderful. Of course not. That's, that would be crazy. <laughs> I mean, if it were true, I would, you know, be, I don't know, uh, really, really popular. Um, but what it does do is it, it, it gets people thinking about things differently. It does provide value to the organization. And honestly, if you're providing value out of data governance to your organization, that is a huge win. And it means you get support and then you can just keep delivering more and more value. Uh, and that really, to me, is like that's that's the happy place, right? Yeah, and I think I'm, I kind of have the same tendency of wanting to blow stuff up, but <laughs> because I uh, I do think you know, okay, we're this isn't going uh, or this isn't serving our needs, so let's think of a different way of doing this. And people are like, okay, but um, we have to to rethink everything from the ground up. Right. And it sounds like what you're saying is you have to be less, far less precious about throwing things out, right? About saying, well, I don't care that we've done it that way. It's, it doesn't make sense or it's not working. You know, I, I feel like this is kind of what Data Mesh is really making a lot of people who've been in data for a long time uh, rethink is, well, why have we done it that way? Does it make sense to do it that way? And that we... You don't throw out the baby in the bathwater. Um, I know you were being a little facetious when you said throw out everything you know about data governance. But like <laughs> when you say that, is it like throw everything into the the Marie Kondo pile of does it spark joy? <laughs> does it spark value? Right? Like does this spark like uh, progress and does this spark 
like what we're actually trying to accomplish versus it's the way it's been done. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, I like that Marie Kondo reference. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Um, yeah. So one of the things you're right. I mean, I don't literally mean that. I mean, it, 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 I mean it in a provocative sense, like, well, what happens if you did that? What happens if you just start throwing stuff away and, you know, seeing what happens. But in, in many respects, what I, what I want you to do is I want you to, I want you to think about everything that you do with a value lens on it. Like, and, and this is true for anything in data and we suck at this. <laughs> it's an industry. Um, and it, and it's, it's not by design. We don't start off, and I certainly can speak for myself, right? I don't start off thinking, well, I'm, I'm just going to sit here and collect a salary and not provide value. I absolutely want to provide value in the beginning. But, you know, you get, you get mired down in organizational inertia and all the stuff that it takes to deliver value out to your organization. And like I said earlier, you just kind of put your head down and you just kind of keep moving forward. Um, so, you know, I think one of the one of the challenges we have as a data industry is if you are not providing value, what are you doing? And this has been a hard lesson from a governance perspective because a lot of people think governance is a checkbox activity. Well, I have a data function, so therefore I have to have data governance. Well, yeah, you can have a data governance checkbox activity, but it's not going to get the job done. It's going to cost you more money and it probably won't keep you safe, which is a lot of the reason why people think they have to have data governance around. So, you know, checkbox activities are not going to get the job done. So when I say throw everything out in terms of what you traditionally think about data governance, I kind of want you to throw everything out and then and then pull back in line what delivers value to your organization and how it delivers value. And and I think we need to change semantically how we think about a lot of these roles. Um, you know, I when people hear data governance, of course, there's usually like a physical like, Ugh. You know, like, ew, ew, um, icky. Um, in like the, one of the f- very first lines in the book that I, I wrote, not a shameless plug, but it's really funny, right? It's like, I really hate data governance. I, that's like the first line in the book. And I get this feedback all the time when people hear me talk. It's like, well, if you hate data governance so much, why are you up there talking about data governance all the time? Well, because we, we, st- we still missing the point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the point is we have to provide value. And so what do committees provide value to anything ever? Usually not. Nope. What's the point of a committee? It's communication. It's shared understanding and it's, and it's in many respects, CYA. Okay. So how do you get those functions, but not have a committee meeting every Tuesday at four o'clock, right? So that's what I, you know, when we think about throwing stuff away, I want you to, I want you to understand what you're throwing away and why, and then pulling back the stuff that's actually impactful and good. And then maybe calling it something else. So instead of like data governance committee, you call it like, you know, your stand up for communication around data governance transparency or something like that. It rolls right off the tongue. Yes, for sure. Uh, (laughs) It's always fun trying to name things right off the top of your head of saying, okay, let's do it. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But but yeah, I think exactly what you're talking about um, of what we're trying to do with Data Mesh is to have the governance team be the provider of the centralized knowledge and capabilities so other people who have the information can actually leverage this and then the governance team can focus more and more on, um, you know, people talk about with um, data mesh that they're really worried about data silos. And and they say, you know, well, this is just going to create data silos. And it's like, if you do it wrong, absolutely. Absolutely. If you if you aren't thinking about interoperability, if you aren't thinking about those standards and, and but I also hate the, the phrase data governance because of what you said. There's so many different things that are underneath this and there's a lot of really good value add and people think of it as only that checkbox and that gate to go through instead of, hey, this is the person, we're going to take you over here and instead of you getting through a gate and they're the gatekeeper, they're your guide, they're your Sherpa. They're, they're guiding you to the promised land of you know better, more valuable data and, and everything like that. And, and, you know, the actual understanding, not just the ones and zeros, but the information flow. And so I, I love 
your energy towards this because I have the same thing. This is kind of honestly why I've done so much stuff around data mesh is I started to, to really dig into what was going on in the data world. And I was just, it was abhorrent to me. <laughs> it's like, what? How? So how have you found the, the, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about this, but like, if somebody is in a culture where they know that this has to change, if they are, you know, do they have to drive the the political process themselves or can they start to make these small incremental improvements? Or, you know, if the committee has to approve of the improvements, can they really deliver that incremental value? Will they have to leave if they don't have somebody who has the vision around this? Or what, what have you seen be kind of the, the spark of change? around data governance for these these organizations? Well, typically the spark of change is that the data governance leader leaves. And in a, in a traditional data governance structure, that person is sort of a linchpin. And they know, you know, I mentioned earlier, they know where all the data bodies are buried. You know, I joke all the time. It's like, they know that, you know, four years ago, we dropped all the, you know, ones in our data over a batch load over the weekend, stuff like that, right? <laughs> Um, that's a true story, by the way. And and so they leave. And because they had all of that inherent knowledge of the function and, and all the you know nuances in the data, and we put all that pressure on them, <laughs> data governance is a really short tenured role. Um, so typically that's what that's what happens. And so I get the call from your chief data officer, or CIO or CTO, and they're like, well, they left and now it sucks. And so can you come help? Um, and, and so one of the first things I, you know, I, I really guide is like, if you have, if you have committees or councils, just like, we're going to just stop doing that for a while. And it doesn't mean we're going to stop doing it forever, but we're just going to stop doing it for a while. And we're going to try things out and see if it works. But if you're embedded in an organization and you don't want to leave and, and you still think you can do, you know, some, some good, uh, I, I, I would challenge you to, you know, create that backlog and, um, really start to deliver value in incremental pieces because nothing speaks louder to the ability to get support than the ability to, to deliver results. Yeah. And it, you know, it doesn't have to be big results, but there has to be some kind of, um, two way communication. Right. And, and because data governance has always sort of been that checkbox activity, we've sort of been very bad about maybe not thinking too much about how we create that two way of communication. Um, and so if you really want to challenge that and you don't think data governance is a checkbox activity, then you got to put your money where your mouth is and just start delivering incremental value out to people. Stop thinking about creating data definitions like it's going to take us forever to do that. You know, the example I use in the book is, you know, interviewed a bunch of people, talked to the CIO. She said it took them 18 months to define weight of a patient, right? Obviously, as a CIO of a hospital, 18 months. So the simple question I asked her is, well, what did you use in the meantime? <laughs> right? And what she used in the meantime was oddly very similar to what they ended up with 18 months later. So, you know, it's this idea of how do you get good enough and how do you as an organization get comfortable with good enough? Because with data, just like with math, right? Everybody thinks that there's like one answer and it, and you have to get to that one answer and that one answer has to be perfect, but there is no one answer. There is no truth in any of this, right? And so what you have to do is you have to get comfortable about that this is good enough and we're just going to keep moving. And as long as we're able to rationalize a lot of these differences, um, everything's going to be, you know, everything's going to be okay. But if you keep that sort of really rigid structure, like this is how we do it, there's only ever one answer. Uh, when things break, it's, it's, it, they, they break in big ways. It's it's funny. It's it, if you were to remove the context of the discussion, you'd basically be talking about kind of how you make progress with your data mesh journey. Because so many people are stuck mm -hmm. with, okay, I have to solve all of these things before we can get moving. And governance is a big one because 
you do want a CYA, you know, and if anybody isn't familiar with the term, it's cover your butt, but <laughs> completely different word. I just don't want to get the explicit tag on, on uh, any of the, the podcast uh, apps, but um, that I think we, as, as people in, you know, as somebody who's coming from outside data, um, I, the, one thing that really, really changed my worldview in, you know, when I was going to college was taking accounting classes and on the tests, there was a right answer. But then when the professor would, would be talking, we, we had one very specific professor who was really good about this. And he said, look, when you actually get out into the real world, there isn't a specific answer. I'm teaching you how to think about these. I'm teaching you how to apply your, you know, your reasoning to this and that there is a right answer because we have very controlled circumstances around this, but the real world is messy. And so exactly what you're talking about, of what is good enough? Like I, I tell people, like there are some people that are putting out their first data products in data mesh and they're sharing them very, very widely within the organization itself because they literally say, we're not going to put any PII in any of these. So there is a, um, you know, there aren't as valuable, but there's a big value. And then somebody can say, how do I, uh, you know, could you add this? And then they add it specifically and give that, that one person access. Um, Scott Hawkins at ITV on his episode talked about, they were trying to go for a universal ID where they could ID anybody across their their different platforms of, you know, they've got um, subscription and free to air and online and, you know, all, all these different things for accessing their TV content or, or their video content. And they came to a thing of, hey, you know what, 98% coverage or whatever it was, is much better than trying to spend the next three years to get to 100% coverage. And then that breaks the second anybody does anything mm -hmm. differently. <laughs> Do you, do you have any like inspirational stories for folks about that kind of getting too good enough or, or what, what you see as good enough? Is it somebody who, who defines that good enough as well? Should that be bottom up, top down? Would, would love to kind of, cause I think it's such a crucial thing to drill into people's heads of there is a good enough. And it, this, you know, with data products, there's things where it, not everything has to be a hundred percent accurate. Not everything has to meet every standard of every single person that could be, you can relax some constraints. So like, do you have any, any thing that you could tell people to get them into that mode, especially anybody who's so used to being that gate and having that accountability and that responsibility, like how, how can they flip that switch if it's not already flipped for them? Right. And it is, you know, it is exceedingly difficult. Um, so I, I just want to like acknowledge that for, for data people, I think in particular, and maybe even more so data people that come from sort of that old school line of thinking like myself, um, where we were taught that, um, well, and to be honest with you, most of us weren't taught, right? Because there weren't <laughs> programs. We, we were thrown into these, into these roles. Like for myself, I have an applied statistics degree. Um, so, you know, I was thrown into that role because I understood data and, and how to, you know, how to apply certain statistical method methods. Um, so it, we, we do want, you know, answers, um, for things and it makes us feel good to, you know, there's nothing more satisfying, at least to, to me being the dork I am is, is that finding the answer, right? Getting down to that, well, I solved the algorithm kind of a scenario. Um, but, but the reality is that it just, it, it, that, that rarely happens in, in the world where we're building out data capabilities in our organizations. So the most important thing I think we can do is think about this like a muscle and we have to get muscle memory around it, which is um, how do we start with something that feels good enough, but not so scary that you're going to put yourself at risk or you feel like you're going to do something wrong. Uh, so I, I think there's definitely that just being really gentle with yourself as you move through this process of switching to this kind of concept of, you know, good enough. The second thing is the most important thing about good enough. And this is very true when you look at the agile world and how they think about it. 
they don't mean good enough as in, oh, well, okay, you did it, good job, and then they never touch it again. I literally mean it is good enough for right now. It is good enough for Tuesday afternoon, and next Tuesday afternoon, we're going to do a little bit better. The whole idea about it is improvement. So when I, you know, when I guide organizations through this work and specifically around data definitions, because we get really wrapped around the axle on those, I, you know, I have a, a specific methodology and then we, we get started on it. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have this, this definition at the end of it. So I worked with this organization and, uh, we, we were able to get to a definition. I mean, honestly, within one meeting. One meeting. And before that, they could never agree on a definition. And they got to it at the end of the meeting. And they got to it at the end of the meeting because we we just created a little bit of muscle memory, right? We were just trying to practice like, well, what would this feel like if we said these words? And then we said, all right, I'm going to say these words. And then we're going to go challenge those words. And then we're going to come back in a week. And they came back in a week and they were like, no, I'm still good with this. And then we published it. And, and we published it with a new, with a, like a little bit of a, an asterisk. And we said, we're going to come back to it in six months. And then we're going to come back to it again in six months. Because, you know, if you write code, you probably want to go back and check the code, right? You make sure you're doing the right thing every once in a while. Same thing with your, with your data definitions. So just create a little bit of muscle memory around, you know, breaking all these, st- this big monolithic stuff into these small increments and just get to that good enough and just know that that good enough is literally right now. It's a point in time. It's not forever. And it, if you get, if you can get the hang of that, then I think, um, you'll really get the hang of, uh, trying to provide value in these smaller increments and just being more comfortable with this idea of change over time. Yeah. And, and I think that's how you also build momentum and sustain momentum and, and keep your funding for, for okay. initiatives, right? Is if you're building, um, the, it's, it's funny because a lot of these episodes, um, it's, uh, I can't remember the, the law that, um, when you first hear about something, you're going to hear about it like 17 other times relatively quickly after that. Um, but there, you know, there's some internet law about that or whatever. But uh, the continuous incremental uh, value delivery, I think Carolina Hensel um, from a, a couple of episodes back was the, the first person to really hammer in on that. But I, I think it's very, very crucial when you think about sustaining momentum. You think about you're sustaining the external momentum and so you can keep your funding and things like that, but you're also sustaining yourself, right? <laughs> you're sustaining your own motivation and that you, you're you like, maybe I'm not Sisyphus. Maybe I'm not pushing this rock up the hill every day for it to just continue to, to fall down. Or I can't remember who was the one who had to transfer water through a sieve or whatever, like all those fun uh, mythology things. But like, that so much of this is is the external but the internal right to keep yourself mm-hmm. motivated of of again marie kondo does do, are these changes sparking joy are you <laughs> are you sparking value but are you also making yourself happy and making your organization feel like a better place to work because so much of governance for me it's about the it, it's it's Yes, it's about the results, but it's also about like the feeling of working there, right? It's, it's almost, it's the core to your data culture. Have you, have you felt that in the past or have you felt that when it's not the core to the data culture, it's, it's bad or, you know, I don't want to put any, it's just a random thought that just kind of came to me. I don't want to put that in your, and saying you're saying that, but like, how, how do you, how do you think about that aspect? Yeah, I mean, honestly, a lot of the conversations I have with organizations around data governance um, is is almost like a proxy to your culture in your organization. So if you have a very traditional way of thinking about governance, then you have, you know, these sort of intake forms and all of these gatekeeper methods and, you know, how you interact with your um, the broader organization. And generally what happens in those scenarios is... Um, uh, you end up spooling off a whole host of shadow IT functions because they just have to get their job done. And we tend to get in the way <laughs> um, when when we think about things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that 
sometimes governance ends up being a proxy for what the culture of that organization looks like. Um, and, and on the flip side of that, then if there's no governance, then it's real fast and loose, which also, you know, has problems. Um, and, and the problems end up looking very similar to having too much governance, um, because you end up creating so much chaos that you can't actually move anything forward. So, you know, there is, and I think there's probably, I know that there's some um, engineering theory about this, right? But you cannot have too much flexibility and you cannot have too much rigidity. There has to be this sort of happy medium. And if we think about our uh, organizations, data organizations, and certainly data governance organizations, um, as, you know, too, too rigid, then we stop the, you know, interactions, and then people start making all these shadow IT functions, which actually spools off more work for data governance. Um, but if we can come to the middle a little bit and have a little bit more uh, flexibility, which is exactly what we're talking about here, right, which is making smaller efforts towards creating value, creating more alignment and what I call happy alliances to other functions like your compliance and privacy and infosec and things like that. Um, then you have smaller pieces that have more flexibility, um, very much like your services, actually, from an architectural perspective, uh, so that if something in that small area breaks, so it was good enough for that moment, but maybe it's not in a month, it's not the end of the world, right? It's not like, oh, data governance sucks and everything's wrong. We have to start over. Uh, so yeah, I, I do, I got off on a tangent there, but I do think that oftentimes data governance can be a proxy for culture. Uh, but if we can start to practice different things and if it doesn't work, then change it. <laughs> you know, you don't have to be quite so precious about everything. Do you have a, a, a framework for helping people to reevaluate? Is it that you, you recommend for watching for the signals that it's no longer good enough or that you say, we're going to come back to it um, no matter what in this time frame, and it's okay even if things are kind of falling apart before then or like how do you because tr- because people again within a da- uh, these traditional data governance teams want <laughs> a set of policies even though that set mm-hmm. of policies like you said isn't the the right thing um, so like how have you found a good way of, of helping people to reevaluate? Is this still good enough for this moment? Or how do we, how do we start to keep an eye on the cracks rather than wait for the dam to break that we can go in and we can, we can patch it well before it's, it's truly a catastrophic issue. Right. Right. So a couple of things, I mean, data governance professionals, we do like rules. It's otherwise we probably wouldn't be in data governance, right? We like to apply rules. So, I'm okay with you applying rules. I just don't want you to apply policies because that's a very different function. Policies really in an organization, particularly in highly regulated organizations, really should be coming from a different entity. What I want you to think about then is, so it's this concept of guiding principles. So when your governance, you know, when your governance team operates, these are the guiding principles that we follow. And one of those guiding principles could be, we always focus on, you know, good enough data definitions or what I like to call working definitions. Um, and part of those poly- part of those guiding principles could certainly be something like we always revisit our, you know, working definitions every six months, but you have to have room for if this thing doesn't work, <laughs> if you're out there and people are telling you it doesn't work, then you need to intervene, right? Because one of the most um, difficult things about data governance is trust. And, and that's, again, because so much of this is true, it's so true in the data function overall. But with, with governance in particular, if people don't trust your data, you know, you're dead in the water. You're not going to get real far. And, and so, you know, there's some opportunity as you're providing value to be building these, these sort of these trust relationships. But if you're doing a bunch of stuff and spooling it out there as quickly as you can just to do that and not going back and revisiting things, then that breaks down trust just as much as anything else does. So those guiding principles can help you as an organization determine when is the best time to go back and look at your working definitions to see if they're still working. Um, but one thing, you know, one sort of call out I want, you know, to, to make sure that I, um, I'm clear about is, 
I don't think that data governance should be defining absolutely everything. And thankfully, most organizations have stopped doing that because there's just too much. But what I, I think is really important is to define those key metrics that run the business and really make sure that that definition that you use, you can use to compare across something. But every organization is going to have a bunch of different definitions of customer, right? As an example, your salesperson is going to think differently than about customer than, you know, your backend finance analyst is going to think about customer. And that's okay. That's okay. And their day-to-day job, I don't want to get in the way of how they think about customer. But when we compare across the organization, whether that be regions or campuses or departments, then they should be using that standard working definition that we worked so hard to create. Um, but in your day-to-day, don't get in the way. <laughs> People are just trying to do their jobs. Um, so, you know, that's kind of thinking about having those guiding principles so you still have some rules to follow, uh, making sure that you're always providing value. And sometimes that value means revisiting the thing that you're supposed to be working on. Um, and then really focus your working definitions on those areas that, you know, are kind of key to your business. Yeah, I, I liked what you were talking about with working definitions. And literally, if they're no longer working, the definition of a working definition is part of it is that it's working. So if Precisely. it's no longer working. <laughs> Precisely. So, um, well, Laura, this has been a really, really awesome conversation. Um, is there anything that we, we didn't cover that, or didn't cover in depth that you think is really important for, for people to really think about when they think about rethinking data governance? (laughs) Um, I mean, we could talk about this for probably hours. Um, I know, (laughs) I know I could, uh, but you know, I, I think, um, I think the one thing that I really want people, particularly practitioners, to hear is, um, you know, that that they're doing a good job, and that it is really, really hard, and you know that if if they're only being acknowledged about that by this one person out here, <laughs> um, I, I think it's important that they're that they're seen uh, because it is a very unsung hero kind of a role. Um, so you know. I can pontificate all day long, but the main thing is if you're doing something and it works for your organization, go do it. You're doing a great job. And I think that's really, you know, as long as we're all doing the right things for our organizations, that's the most important thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I fully agree. I think that part of the reason I started the podcast was to like the practitioners weren't getting a lot of the content um, around data mesh. Because so much of the stuff, there's a much wider audience, again, for every article that says, what is data mesh versus the practitioners, but the practitioners are the ones that are really like, we already know we're bought in, like, please make content for us. So, um, but yeah, so uh, again, thank you so much for the time. If uh, people do want to follow up with you, I'm assuming something related to governance, but is there any specific thing that you'd like people following up and where, where's the best place is LinkedIn or Twitter, or is there any specific place that you prefer people to kind of go through? Yeah, you can find me on, on LinkedIn. Um, Twitter is kind of useless. I'm, I'm really inconsistent on there. Um, <laughs> Twitter's just kind of useless, but that's a conversation for a different day. Um <laughs> Uh, and you can also always find me on our on our website, moxieanalytics.com. And is there anything specific that you'd like people like, I mean, yes, obviously, if somebody's interested in potentially hiring you, but is there any other thing where, where you're like, if somebody's in this um, kind of seat or in, in this experience right now, that you're like, I, I, you want to hear more or <laughs> you want to make sure that they feel seen and heard or anything like that? Right. I mean, for sure. I mean, if you're new to data governance or your data governance kind of has recently fallen under your purview as an executive, um, you know, you can certainly, certainly reach out and give me, give me a shout. Um, because I, one of the, one of the main things is obviously I'm a consultant, but, but the other part of it too is I think it's really important that we stay together as a community. Um, there are lots of other resources that are available and out there. And it doesn't just mean that you have to hire me uh, because I, I really believe strongly that data and data programs in our organizations will be better if we can be better about how we think about data governance. So um, if you're, you know, if you're at that point where you're either ready to make a change or it's new to you, 
I'm always happy to direct you in lots of different ways. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for the time and, and thank you as well, everyone, for listening. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Laura Madsen, CEO of Moxie Analytics and the author of Disrupting Data Governance. You can find a link to her company website, the book, and her LinkedIn in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of Throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.